Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of you who've joined us, thank you for being here. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by one of the UK's leading environmental voices, the writer, activist, and author of Climate Change is Racist, Race, Privilege, and the Struggle for Climate Justice, Jeremy Williams. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So I guess before we get into it, I wanted to understand a little bit about you and a little bit about your own journey. How did you come to be so interested in this particular topic? What's your story? Yes, well, it's um, it's one that goes back a little way, really, in that I grew up in Madagascar and then I was sent to school in Kenya. And so I grew up as a, a white person in Africa and um, as a minority, basically, um, <clears throat> a very privileged minority, as you are, as a white person in Africa. So I had um, engaged with the idea of whiteness quite early on in my life. Um, and then I kind of put it to one side, I suppose, when I moved back to Britain as a teenager and was white in a white culture and blended in seamlessly. And then I came back around to thinking about race through my work in climate change. And when I came to see just how there's this massive racial divide in climate change, that's almost never talked about. So I sort of come in sideways into the race debate from, from climate change. And you, you say in the book that obviously the title is climate change is racist. You say that you started off the research for this with a question mark at the end of that. Mm. So I'm gonna ask that question to you is climate change racist? And if so, how? Yes, well, so <laughs> I started off with a file on my computer saying called, you know, is climate change racist? Because it's a question that I had for myself. And the reason I'd asked that question is because I had put together these two images, uh, a, a, an image of like a map of the world with all the countries sort of marked up for their carbon footprints. And then alongside it, I'd put a map of the world that showed climate vulnerability. And I'd never seen the two maps side by side until I kind of put them together. And then I realized that uh, they're almost like negatives of each other. So in one, you see that all the countries of the world that have the biggest carbon footprints are white countries, the countries of the North, along with um, Australia, white, and Japan, a couple of places, yeah. white majority countries, yeah. yeah. And all the countries that are most vulnerable are places that have majority black and brown populations. Mm -hmm. And you go, but hang on a second, <laughs> the people who've done the most to cause climate change are the last to suffer from it. And the people who are suffering now already have done the least to cause it. And my initial thought was, well, there's clearly a different outcome here for white people and for people of color. Is that racist? And I, at the time I thought of it, I'd never heard anyone make that connection. I'd never heard anyone say that climate change was racist. Mm -hmm. 
And then it's you not because a whole load of people had been saying it for quite some time. Exactly. And it's not because no one would ever said ever said it. It's just that I'd never heard anyone say it because mm. in the circles I move in, that's not something that's visible. So I started looking at looking at this and I had to do an awful lot of reading about racism in order to understand how climate change could be racist, because the definitions that were given of racism, certainly growing up in Britain, are that racism is about personal prejudice. So, you know, if I go out into the street here in Luton and shout abuse at, at somebody that I'm being a racist, um, you get racist football chants, booing the footballers taking the knee, that's racism. The idea that institutions can be racist is not something that's well understood, in my experience, by I'm white people. Contested, yeah. yeah, although it is well understood by people of colour. And so we have these differing definitions of, uh, of racism. Once I started to look into this and understood how institutional racism works and then how structural racism works, you go, okay, so this is how climate change is racist. Mm. Obviously, climate change can't have prejudice. It's not a person, but it's about outcomes. And the outcomes from climate change are very different for people of colour and therefore climate change is racist. And it sounds like you will have gone on your own journey of sort of acknowledging and recognizing your own whiteness in the fact that you weren't even aware of this, right? So you were already engaged in the environmental movement, but you'd never really thought or even heard of the, the, the reality of the impact of it on people who are racialized as black and brown. Um, so how did that journey begin? And, and was it, you know, something that you then realized was a kind of huge gulf that you were missing? And, and how did you, how, how did that happen? How is it possible mm. to have missed out on all of that information? Well, it's interesting because my main motivation for being involved in climate change in the first place is, is climate justice. <clears throat> so having come from Madagascar, you know, where I grew up, I could see how climate change would affect places like Madagascar disproportionately. You know, every year we had the cyclone season come through and climate change is making that worse and worse. I've always been motivated by my experiences of, uh, from Africa and how climate change is impacting Africa. But I'd always seen that in terms of wealth and poverty. And even though obviously there were reasons why Africa is still poor that are to do with colonialism and unequal power structures and so on. I hadn't put it together through that racial framework. Mm. Um, and so that was the learning piece really was when I first began to realize, well, hang on a second, there is a racial dynamic here, which I haven't explored. I need to make sense of that. And then I needed to go back and do an awful lot of reading <laughs> about race and racism mm. to really lay the foundations. And that was a massive learning curve for me because <clears throat> I was aware that although I know loads about climate change, I've, I didn't feel confident talking about race at all. And I was aware that it's, that it is difficult and you'll have experienced this too. There, there are, there are pitfalls <laughs> that you can hit talking well, we about race. Blind spots. Yes, we have absolutely. Blind spots. People who are racialized as white, we've, our entire life we have been, you know, we haven't had to be confronted with certain realities and yeah. you know, sometimes they can smack you in the face, right? Because yeah. you haven't. Yeah, mm. yeah. The, the risk of, of saying something dumb is very high, much higher talking about race than it is talking about climate change. And so when I first thought, well, hang on a second, there's a, there's a dynamic to climate change that I'm not hearing people talk about in my circles. 
I looked for a book about climate change and race because I wanted to read one and I couldn't find one. And a couple of years went by and I would regularly sort of jump on various uh, book retail sites and search for climate change and race because I, I really wanted to know more about it. Mm -hmm. And when nothing came up year after year, I started to think, well, actually, maybe I just need to write this book myself. Mm. And then I talked myself out of it because I didn't feel like it was my book to write as a white person that I didn't think that that was I would be able to do that authentically. And then I realized that if climate change is racist, then it's white people that need to do the work. And I needed to take responsibility for that. And I actually was quite kind of offended at myself for thinking that it would be up to someone to a writer of color to write this book. Mm. Um, not everyone sees it that way, I should add. Um, I, I've, I had a, a publisher reject the book because it wasn't written by a person of color. Yeah. Um, and I've had some activists uh, say, you know, who I really respect, say that that wasn't my book to write and that I'm taking up space. So I understand that even that's a contested kind of thing. Yeah. But it just shows you the degree of complexity in this whole debate. Of course. And um, I, I mean, I think in the book, you talk about the fact that, um, you know, although you were struggling to find a book, like I, I would call like a sort of white mainstream book about race and um, climate change that actually, you know, uh, BLM UK, uh, Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe, many uh, black activists, environmental activists um, from the global south had actually been talking about the racist dimension of climate change. It's just that that hasn't really filtered up. And I'm just wondering yeah. why you feel like that hasn't filtered up in the movement, because here in the UK, the environmental movement has come under some critique for being too white. Um, so how, in a world of intersectionality where we know that these struggles are all connected, firstly, do you think the environmental movement does have a problem with whiteness? And if so, why? Uh, I think that the environmental movement, as far as I've engaged with it, is very aware that it has a problem with whiteness in that it's not representative. Um, <clears throat> but I think there's a very shallow understanding of what that means. So I think people tend to look around the room and go, we don't have any Asians, we don't have any black people, therefore we are not representative. Whereas I want to drill a little bit deeper than that and say, <clears throat> it's not just about who's in the room, it's about the issues that you're talking about. It's about the causes that you support. It's about who, who is prioritized in terms of, of um, the actual risks of climate change. Right. So just for example. Yeah, a bit so like much... the reckoning that fe feminism <clears throat> has gone through, right? White yeah. feminism had to realize that the center of feminist concerns couldn't possibly be defined by the concerns of white women. Yeah, and that's the huge insight from intersectionality and um, beginning to bring it to bring in those perspectives. And that I think is just beginning really in environmentalism as a mainstream kind of thing. It's always been there in the environmental justice movement, which is very much a black led movement. Um, but that's just beginning to filter in now. And mm -hmm. it forces you to ask different questions. So just to give you an example, yeah. the number of times that you go to a climate change protest and people are saying, we need to do this for our children. We need to do this for our grandchildren and for future generations. And there's part of me that's kind of screaming inside going, Madagascar was just hit by a cyclone last week you know, thousands of people will have lost their homes. It's not about our grandchildren. <laughs> I mean, it is about them too, because of climate course. change 
is a global issue and it will affect everyone, but we're still able to hold it at a distance because it doesn't directly affect us. Because whiteness means the empathy stops at the color boundary. Their children yeah. aren't our children, aren't our concern. Is yeah. that what? That's, yeah. part, that's part of it. Um, another big part of it is just that Africa, which is the continent that is going to face the greatest uh, risks from climate change, is just invisible generally. So there is an empathy gap, and I discuss that in the book. But also, like we don't get news from Africa. We don't. You know, people talk. I'm doing it right now, talking about Africa as one big place. Mm. <laughs> you know, you, we couldn't name all the presidents of African countries. We most most people haven't been to Africa on on holiday other than like, you know, maybe some kind of safari or something. <laughs> uh, we're fairly ignorant about it. And this is a really key thing with, um, therefore, the voices that you hear from Africa around climate change. And one of the things that I'm most struck by is you just almost never hear an African perspective on climate change within mm. the broader climate movement. Mm. So I was really excited this week to read a new book called The Bigger Picture by Vanessa Nakate, who's uh, an activist in her 20s in Uganda. And um, she's got a book coming out later this year. Yes, the big picture, uh, which talks about the need for new African voices in the climate change debate. Mm. And it's got, uh, you know, a, a UK publisher, it's got a global release. Uh, and it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. And I heartily recommend it. Um, but what was really striking to me was there's that book that's coming out this year. And then you would need to count right back to Wangari Maathai in, uh, well, 10 years ago, she died 10 years ago. For the last time, an African environmentalist had a book from a UK publisher. There's oh, a 10 wow. year gap, there's a 10 wow. year gap there. Wow. Um, so it's hardly surprising <laughs> that yeah. we're not aware of African perspectives. Um, and that's, that's not to do with African writers not speaking up, with active, active, African activists not speaking up. Yeah is to do with the power structures of who gets listened to and who doesn't and who gets, who sells books, who, gets who contains books. Yeah. yeah. That, and, and it would be the same across, not just books, but across, you know, media appearances. You could watch a documentary on climate change and you'd have people, you'd have talking heads from America and you'd, maybe you'd have some, some black American voices in there, which is all welcome, but the chances of getting an African voice in there are very slim. Mm. Even people who I who I really respect, like uh, Greta Thunberg in her latest documentary, she travels all around yeah. visiting different places. And I watched the whole series and I was going, please go to Africa. Please just cross the water and, and, and you know, and then and she didn't. And I'm sure she will. There was a pandemic on. I'm not going to blame her for that. Yeah. But it's constantly overlooked. And I think that's one of the critiques. I mean, I think, you know, obviously this is no shade on Greta and the work that she does. Absolutely. But I think it's been a critique of the elevation of Greta as a symbol of a movement that primarily affects black and brown people, but yet is yeah. most widely recognized through the elevation of a white, blonde, Scandinavian girl. Yeah. Um, again, um, there should be room for everyone, but at the moment there's some people who clearly just aren't even being let into the room. Um, yeah. I, I, I wanna take you back a little bit to the to the ways in which climate change is racist for people who, who are sort of going, well, you know, it's very unintentional. And, you know, what's the connection between me, a white person here living here in the UK and 
you know, environmental um, change or, you know, environmental disasters happening in other parts of the world. And I think you mm. trace that really interestingly and powerfully in the book. So I was wondering if you might be able to share some examples of the ways in which actually, um, you know, our actions as individuals, you know, in white majority countries have a very direct impact on the livelihoods um, and future of people in the global south. Hmm. Well, that's the thing because there's a long, you know, there's it's a long way to Africa or to the Caribbean or to or to wherever else, you know, we might consider to be on the front lines of, of climate change, but we do all share one atmosphere, and that means that you know the cars passing out here in the street are pumping their <laughs> fossil fuel emissions straight into the same sky. Um, but the overall effects of climate change are very variable and so um, they're so different depending on the, the landscape basically and the geography of the place where you are. So whether you're on the coast or not, whether you're in a dry part of the world or not. And most obviously, since we're talking about global warming, whether you're in a hot part of the world or not. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really obvious when you think about it, but if you live in Scandinavia, a couple of degrees warming, it's not nothing. There will be you know, summer heat waves and so on, but you can afford to have a couple of degrees of extra heat. If you live in the Sahel region, right below the Sahara Desert, Right. A couple of degrees of extra heat in an already hot place is the difference between being able to stay on your land or it becoming uninhabitable and eventually desert and you have to move. Mm. So, so it, obviously more heat is more dangerous in hotter places. And you look at the equator where it's hottest and you've got this stripe of uh, vulnerability basically to climate change running you know, from west to east, from the Caribbean, right across Africa, into India, and out towards the Pacific Islands. And those are the places that are most vulnerable to climate change. That means, you know, um, more storms. I always think again of Madagascar and the cyclones coming off the Indian Ocean, it gets battered every year. Um, and the same would be true of many Caribbean countries. Um, you've got sorry, you traced one, sorry to cut you, but there's just mm. one point I really wanted to get your, because I, so famine in Ethiopia, yeah. a lot of people will think of famine as something that's, you know, uh, act of God, you know, if, if mm. it was insurance policy, act of God, you know, no one can really do anything about that. It's just a tragedy. But yeah. it, that's not quite true, though, is it? No, well, this is it's an example I use in the book because, you know, that famine in was it 1984 was yeah. so iconic for so many people. Mm. Uh, because it was the subject of live aids and it was on the tv news and it really struck people and it led to this outpouring of generosity towards ethiopia which is fantastic what emerged later though is you know a couple of decades later you've got scientists in australia uh, kind of analyzing the weather patterns around that and realized that rainfall across that whole area was affected by air pollution out of europe and as new european laws changed on air pollution, rainfall patterns changed over Ethiopia. Now this is air pollution rather than climate change, but they're linked because they're both fossil fuels. It's quite possible, and it is contested, you know, these things are all up for discussion, but it is quite likely that that drought and therefore that famine was caused by fossil fuel use. Right, and, and this was a investigation, right, that revealed yeah. 
these connections yeah. so it wasn't some kind of you know some crock research this is no. very very serious people looking into these issues and so Absolutely. one of the issues I wanted to also ask you about is we tend to think of the the, the issue of uh, climate changes as linked to the industrial revolution and you know fossil fuels but mm. you trace the sort of racism of climate change as starting well before the industrial revolution so can you tell us how you track that story differently to yeah. what we're usually used to hearing about it yes well it, it's to do with power and who's got money <laughs> basically throughout history and um <clears throat> so a lot of the times if you read a history of climate change it will often start with the industrial revolution the discovery of coal and the iconic invention of that is the Bolton and Watt steam engine. And if you go to the Science Museum and the Energy Hall, that's the enormous great thing that's at the, cent the centerpiece of that. It's so iconic that it was on the back of the 50 pound note, a note that we don't see very often these days. Uh, but it's, you know, it, it deserved the biggest note. <laughs> Goes to Bolton and Watt and their steam engine. Uh, it was the centerpiece of the Olympic Games opening ceremony in London. They had these great big steam engines come up. So, you know, it, it defines the Industrial Revolution. But what's interesting is that in order to fund those first uh, Bolton and Watt steam engines, they took a loan out from a bank, and that bank was in turn financed by plantations in the Caribbean that were using slaves. So it was very directly uh, the stolen labor of those slaves that paid for that iconic invention that kick-started the whole Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Now that's kind of, that's the iconic one, but it runs all through the, the legacy of slavery projects, which are quite transparent. You can go onto the UCL website and you can look up uh, the legacies of slavery and you can see which families owned slaves and which plantations and what else they had interests in. It's a fascinating, you could lose an afternoon if you're interested in this stuff, fascinating exercise. And if you look at it, you find, you know, uh, families of wealthy industrialists that have, you know, 300 slaves working for them in Jamaica and they invest in the railways. Uh, you know, they'll have 200 slaves in Barbados and they invest in a, a steel plant. And, and so it, you've got this huge subsidy of stolen labor uh, feeding into industrialization. And that's not just the money, it's also the resources because once you get those mills up and running in places like Manchester, they're making the money out of cotton, which is coming from the slave plantations. You basically got free labor providing the materials for, for the industrial revolution. Mm. So you could argue if you really wanted to that maybe industrialization would have happened without slavery, but in our version of history, it didn't. It, mm. it is fundamentally connected. And that means that you have a continuity from slavery through to empire, through fossil fuels and industrialization and through to climate change. And the key thing in all of that is that it's always the same people winning. <laughs> it's always wealthy white people at the top of that tree. And the same people suffering today from climate change are the same people who were suffering 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Um, and it, there's a continuity there and it's worth exploring more and highlighting and maybe in time coming to see this in a more holistic fashion. Mm. I thought that was a really interesting point in the book. You also see climate denial as a form of white privilege. Can you unpack that for us? Yes, well, that's a key thing, I think, when you, 
when you think about who's affected by climate change and who has the luxury of wondering whether it's real. You know, I get this on Facebook still sometimes. I'll, I'll say something about the climate emergency and post a picture from an Extinction Rebellion protest or whatever. And somebody will post underneath, you know, what emergency? And I just want to say, like, it's not an emergency for you because you live in Essex or wherever, and it's you're not seeing your land flooded by salt water. Not yet, anyway. Um, you haven't lost your crops. You haven't lost your livestock. You haven't seen your, um, you know, your livelihood ruined by, by climate change. Yeah. But for many other people, that's a, a lived reality. We're so far removed from it that we have the, the luxury of questioning whether it's even real, of questioning whether we need to act, of whether we're actually responsible, because we're just not seeing it. And that's very similar, I think, to the kinds of attitudes that you get about racism. And we see this with the kind of government reports that come out going, well, it's not that bad, is it? We've had a lot of progress over the last 40, 50 years. Maybe people are kind of imagining it. Maybe there's a victim complex. All this kind of explaining away because you don't live with it every day and you have the luxury of being able to explain it away. So I think there's a real overlap there between yeah. white privilege and climate privilege and male privilege as well, which gets all mangled up in there. You look at who's most likely to be a climate skeptic and it's overwhelmingly men mm. and men of a certain age as well. There's a generational divide there too. Yeah. And, and um, one of the areas that I thought was really interesting in terms of how we um, as, uh, you know, societies respond to the calls that are increasingly urgent, right, from the global south. So, you know, we hurricanes destroying water levels, you know, submerging entire people's homes. Um, so, so it feels very urgent if you're actually listening to the people on the front line of it. But you connect are, and I say our as in white British or white European people's inability to really take on board that urgency with something called the empathy gap. And I, I presume you've done some research into the empathy gap based mm. off your book. So do you wanna tell us about the empathy gap and how you think that functions in terms of how white Europeans respond to climate emergencies or the cl climate change more broadly? <clears throat> Yeah, it's a tricky one. I, I was kind of horrified when I read about it for the first time. And it both makes sense and also appalls me <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Because what, basically the empathy gap is, it's folk wisdom in a sense that, you know, birds of a feather flock together kind of stuff. Um, but it basically means that we relate to people who are more like us. So it's easier for us to find, to feel empathy for people who are very similar to us. Mm. I think we see this in the news all the time. Uh, if there's a, a fire or a flood in somewhere like us, like Australia or in the US, where it's uh, white people like us, white middle class people who drive cars and have fridges and that kind of stuff, we, we empathize and the news is full of their stories. Um, <clears throat> when those same things happen to people, uh, to black and brown people, the empathy doesn't trigger in us and we don't relate as well. Um, so I was doing some research around this and, it, and it's, it's one of those things that they do different psychological experiments. So one of the experiments was kind of wiring up volunteers so you could test uh, their, their reflexes to watching someone in pain. So as, as humans, we have a natural response when we see someone in pain. And so they showed people getting an injection and everyone kind of quivers a little bit when needles come out. 
Uh, and so they showed uh, white skin, a needle piercing white skin, and then uh, Asian brown skin, and then black skin. And they monitored people's reactions to it. And what was really interesting is that people kind of shuddered more at, at the needle piercing white skin. So white um, people or everyone? Well, this is a really interesting thing. So you would think white people responded to the white skin and that black people would have responded to black skin. But what's really fascinating is that black people also responded more to white skin. Because that's how whiteness works, right? It, exactly. It like yeah. Indoctrinates everyone that's yeah. in it. But yeah, but obviously operates differently in terms of your power. You also mentioned the idea that historically there were... Um, there was a view, particularly during slavery and colonialism, that black and brown people didn't feel pain in the same yeah. way. Um, so t tell us a bit about the research you did around that. Yeah, so that's the thing. When you look back at the history of slavery, there's always been explanations for why it's okay. Um, and the origins of racism, because it is a social construct, they come around, they come about this, around the same time that slavery really starts to take off. And basically the whole idea of racism and of racial hierarchies is created in order to justify slavery, um, both with sort of Dutch slavery and then with the British empire hot on its heels. Um, and so, you know, right from the start, you've got people saying, well, white people are the pinnacle of humanity. And then you've got, you know, different people do different hierarchies with, you know, Native American and Chinese, you know, all the rest of it. Although it's always, whoever's doing it, it's always black African bodies at the bottom for some reason. And then you say, well, it's because their brains are less developed. You know, they, they don't have uh, family networks and uh, don't respect marriage the way we do. And all sorts of horrendous cultural um, racist tropes that we've seen trotted out many times. And one of those is that uh, they don't feel pain and therefore it's okay to uh, to punish them in the ways that slavery is notorious for. Um, <clears throat> you, it's deliberately dehumanizing people and it's often right. dressed up in sort of weird pseudoscience, um, but it's, it's ultimately just racist but, legitimizing something you've already decided to do. But lots of people will think, oh, that's just, you know, that was then, that was when it was the time of slavery that people used to think like that. But no, yeah. you say in the book that actually the legacy of that way of thinking is that today when we see suffering because of climate change, but it could also be for other reasons, white people just cannot empathize in the same way. It, it has left a long, a long echo uh, to the point that there's a whole um, raft of research around health outcomes yeah. that I haven't dived into, but that I'm aware of, yeah. uh, where uh, people of color get less pain medication. They mm -hmm. get less, they get a lower dose and they get it slower because there's this, this unspoken usually assumption that they can handle more pain. Mm. Um, so those, those kind of ideas have, yeah. have left a very long echo. And I think that's part of this idea that we find it difficult to empathize. Mm. Um, I don't think that's inevitable by any means. I think you can build empathy. Yeah. Um, and there's some great books on that as you know, that are out there as well. Um, I think empathy is built when we see people's stories and uh, there's all kinds of ways of engaging with each other. And uh, so what, just to say some of the things that I've found helpful. I, I love reading uh, fiction. I love reading anything to be honest, um, but reading fiction by uh, black writers and 
just sort of going deep into uh, lives and cultures very different from mine. And you can't help but begin to see things differently. Um, movies with uh, about uh, black lives. Mm. And I'm not talking about black characters in a white world necessarily, but movies that really kind of commit fully. So one of my favorites, for example, is uh, The Queen of Katwe. Mm -hmm. um, there's no white people in that entire movie. It's just an yeah. African movie. Um, I mean, I, I suppose this is one of the big questions around the wider issue of what we call representation, which, which yeah. is so, so often co-opted as diversity, but actually in its essence is about if there was um, an equal representation of people on their own terms, not filtered through a white lens, that yeah. we would see people, truly see people for who they are and not see them in relation to ourselves, which I think is one yeah. of the main problems with whiteness is it's always that there's a relationship of power within that lens that infects you know every aspect of life um I want to two two things I want to get on and, and I'm just conscious of time one of them was the idea that actually um climate change um in the U.S. there's a much bigger conversation than there is here in the U.K. already around the domestic impact of hmm. uh, climate change along racial lines um that you know I mean I, I think a lot of people might sort of more or less consciously realize that poorer residents are more likely to live closer to say environmental waste sites but from you know what you say in the book this is almost systematic and systemic that black and brown people are consistently on the front line not just abroad in the global south but right here in our in the uk and in our countries here in europe as well can you tell us a bit about that yes so one of the things that uh, that i find really interesting is that um the environmental justice movement began in the states and kind of grew out of the civil rights movement and there hasn't really been an equivalent level of research in the UK. Um, and so as I was researching the book, I constantly kind of bumped up against the limits of what had been done in Britain so far. Um, but because it is a systemic issue, you know that there will be uh, greater exposure to risks from people of colour. There, the, there is some research that says that um, people in Britain um, have unequal um, exposure to air pollution. So in the big cities, particularly in London, it's been quite well researched. Yeah. Black Londoners tend to breathe dirty air. That's, uh, you know, you're going to live closer to main roads. Um, you're going to live in parts of town where the wind, I mean, the East End is famous for being the poorer part because the smell of London blew east. <laughs> and it goes back a long way, that, that particular injustice. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, there's a lot more research to do. I, I definitely think we will find all sorts of overlapping inequalities it won't just be along color lines. It will also be to do with class. It will be to do with geography. Mm. Uh, we know we have a massive uh, rural urban divide in Britain and uh, North South, all these kinds of things. And what and about gender? Overlap. You, you, and, gen and gender too. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a bit more about gender because, you, you know, you talk about the fact that, you know, in addition to the race dimension, it's, it's specifically black and brown women who are disproportionately affected by climate change. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, this is just to do in part with, um, with culture uh, and, and also to do with the kinds of um, places that people are gonna live and the roles they're gonna have. So one of the things is 
we know that Africa is uh, going to be most affected by climate change. We know that uh, most um, farming in Africa is carried out by women in um, small farms. It's the men who often go out to work. It's the women who tend the plot, which means that if there's an issue, uh, you know, a famine, if there's um, if people are going to lose their crops, it will be women farmers to lose those. In many countries, it's still the role of um, women and girls to run the household, and that means collecting firewood and collecting water. So in a drought situation, that directly means girls having to walk further to get water. They're exposed to various risks, as well as the long walk. Um, so it directly impacts um, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. You've also, you've also got increased risk, so it's often women that do the care. So if it comes to, um, say there's a flood, it's, it may well fall to the women to get children to safety, to get elderly people to safety. You can imagine the difficulties of trying to navigate through floodwaters with a, with a baby on your back, with a couple of toddlers to carry. And, and often culturally, uh, girls don't have the same kind of education or the same kind of experiences. So just a really practical thing. A lot of girls aren't taught to swim. There's issues around modesty and around swimming uh, and so girls aren't taught to swim, a flood comes, you know, you, you've got a, an unequal outcome there. And it's a really simple and practical thing. In Vanessa Nakate's book, she talks about uh, in, in Uganda, uh, girls weren't encouraged to climb trees. And again, it's just like, oh, girls don't climb trees, boys climb trees. Mm. But then again, in a flood situation, you might need to climb a tree. It's just really kind of simple and strange little things that you don't necessarily know they're going to be a problem later yeah um so it's, 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 yeah there's all kinds of things like that yeah the, the the added layer of patriarchy to the existing racism of the unequal way in which climate change affects different groups so yeah um I, before we go to the quick fire round i wanted to ask you about obviously i'm sure everyone asks every environmental campaigner this question of what's the solution right how do individual people um uh, make changes that don't make us part of the problem and not just that but hopefully help us find ways to be part of the solution and in the book you bring up a term which is apparently um well which is absent from um the european languages that i'm familiar with and therefore from uh the european way of thinking and that's the idea of a, being a good ancestor mm. um and so you you say in the book that there are some cultures not ours uh, that have long thought about this idea of what it means to be a good ancestor. So can you tell us a bit about the term itself, you know, um, who we owe this cultural debt to in, in, um, in sort of opening our eyes to the idea that we can think of ourselves as, as ancestors and therefore having a, leaving a legacy? Um, and then how, how do we become good ancestors? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's not that it's not there in our way of thinking is that it's been lost and obscured. So mm. <clears throat> other cultures have, have kept a hold of it and we've lost it. Mm. Um, I think if you just go back to the Victorian era and the kind of architecture that's being built and you look at a, a station or a school that's built in the Victorian era and they, they genuinely believed that, uh, that things should be beautiful and should be built to last. Things like the fact that uh, London sewers, we haven't had to expand them because the Victorians had built them with like 150 years worth of kind of future-proofing behind them. Yeah. So, we, so we did have that kind of stuff in the past. And, and I think the kind of individualism of 
consumerism has drummed it out of us. Mm. Uh, so we've got some of our own heritage to rediscover there. Yeah. Um, but in other cultures where that hasn't been lost, you see this sense that if you're making a decision, you don't just consider yourselves, you consider in some cultures, seven generations. In Native American culture, they talk about seven generations. Um, what's the long-term consequences of the decisions that you make? And there's all kinds of things that you might do that um, could won't even benefit you. Every time you plant a tree, it's gonna take 50 years to grow. It's not you that's gonna benefit from that tree. So you have to be able to think long-term and to make those kinds of good decisions. And climate change is really like that. Some of the decisions we need to do, some of the, the sacrifices we need to make now to say, you know what, we're not gonna take that new coal mine in Carlisle that's been proposed. <laughs> um, we don't need that. We don't need the immediate kind of economic boost that that would provide because it would ultimately be bad for future generations of people that live in that area as well as those who uh, live on, other, on the other side of the world. So we have to say no to those easy wins now. And the only way we can do that is by having that longer term perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so to be a good ancestor is to, you know, if, if, if our great, great grandchildren were to look back and say, people in 2021, uh, just a piece of work. <laughs> I <laughs> suspect they will, yeah. Made. They will, they will. And, yeah. you know, at the moment, well, I suppose it's up to us to change that. But um, to say to, to be able to look back and say, you know what, that generation did the right thing. They left us these gifts. Um, they, 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 they changed course and look where we are now because of mm. good decisions made then. Mm. Uh, that's what it would be to be a good ancestor. Well, thank you very much um, for that. Um, I also note, just be, um, we don't have time to necessarily go into it, but that the, the, you mentioned we're obviously still in the midst of a, a global pandemic. The fact that the vaccine for Ebola had been sat on for a decade by yeah. a company yeah. Intel yeah. cases broke out in the US. So Africans were dying of Ebola and this company sat on the patent for 10 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm just, you know, bringing that out because, the, the, I mean, we probably have to do a whole other one on racism and, and uh, the pandemic because there's a lot to be said yeah. on that. But so that's, that's, Vaccine inequality is worth, is worth the whole post uh, yes, in itself uh, from it, somebody else. <laughs> God willing, we'll, we'll, we'll get to yeah. it. Um, so we're on the quick fire round now. Um, yeah. Jeremy, what's your definition of whiteness? I haven't thought about it long enough to have a single sentence, but I think it's about unjust power and that whiteness is about being told that you're the top of this imaginary tree and you get to look down on everyone else from the top of this tree and as a white person no one's told you that the tree is imaginary it's <laughs> it's like this invisible hierarchy and you just know that you're at the top of it and as long as you don't examine it and think about it too hard you get to feel superior to everyone else and behave like a dick. Uh, <laughs> what is the root of racism? Uh, the root of racism is in wanting to be able to take things that aren't ours to take. And that started off with slavery and then it became land and now it's the atmosphere. What is the most effective way you found to challenge whiteness? In myself, it's been reading the voices of black writers. Among wider society, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can speak for myself, but I'm not sure beyond that. 
Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? I would love to think that there is such a thing as a post-racial world. But I also feel like it's not for me to define what that would look like. I feel like I want to hear that from the people who've been on the receiving end of racism to tell me what a post-racial world looks like because a lot of people like me think we already have one mm. and that's clearly not the case. Right. So I want to leave that in their court. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? I look forward to the day when it won't be, but right now I think it really is. And it allows us to talk about racism as structural and uh, our own complicity within it but I do understand why it's very uncomfortable for people. Um, well, thank you so much, Jeremy. Um, if people want to connect with you and your work, where can they find you? Yes, so I write a blog, which is called The Earthbound Report, and that is www.earthbound.report. And I've been running that for 12 years now on uh, all, all sorts of different angles on sustainability, race being one of them, but lots of others. Uh, and then the book yes. is uh, Climate Change is Racist. So there we go. That's what it looks like. <laughs> and uh, yeah, please do read it and discuss it with people. And where do you have a bookseller of choice you'd like to recommend to people? Well, uh, if you go to Earthbound Report, there are links there uh, to buy it from uh, bookshop.org, which would be my preferred place for people to get it, because uh, the richest man in the world doesn't need any extra money. <laughs> Said it, not me. Jeremy yeah. uh, Williams, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to all of you for joining us in for this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.